Hi there, and a super warm welcome to another episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I am so glad that you are joining me for this episode because I am joined by Beck Dory Stein, who is a brilliant author, has written this book called From the Corner of the Oval, and it documents her time working as a stenographer in the White House during the Obama administration. And this podcast is slightly different in the sense that actually, sometimes when I, no, not sometimes, the majority of the time when I record episodes, I meet the guest, we have a little bit of a chat, we record the episode, we might have another little bit of a chat, but then that's kind of it. I mean, not with not with some of the guests that you know I'm friends with, but with some people who've flown over from the US, they're on a tight schedule, you get an, you get an allotted amount of time. Beck was different because I spent the day with her and I'm not joking, it was one of those days that was just slightly magical. She has got good juju, she's got such great energy, she's incredibly talented and there was just a day where me, Beck, her publicist and uh, some other people from the... um, from the publisher, just all spent the day together and it was just fantastic. And I honestly came away feeling really buzzed and high and it was amazing. Just um, that chemistry, that chemistry when that energy is really, really good between people. And I was fascinated and she was really open about her book. She was open about how she pieced it together and what it was like being that close to President of the United States, which I was really intrigued by. I am one degree of separation from President Obama. That felt kind of cool and weird and wonderful all at the same time. She's a great writer. And I feel like every now and again, um, if I start complaining about something, something will happen. And I'll just get a, a very slight knock around the back of the head as if to say, stop it, Emma. And I had been saying recently that my to be read pile for the podcast was really, really high and I was finding it really, really stressful and it was making me not enjoy the books. And I was talking to my my friend about it and she said, well, just take a weekend off, just take a weekend off and don't read any books that you have to, that you're doing as research, just read a fun book. So I was like, yes, you're absolutely right. I'm going to read more of Lindsay Kelk. That's going to be my way into into sort of finding the the love of reading again. And I had this book on my bedside table and I thought, actually, I really like it. It's a gorgeous book. They've designed it really nicely because it's bright pink and it just looks good. And I thought, okay, do you know what? I'm going to just read a couple of chapters of this just to get a sense of it. And then I can speed read it. I've got a bit of time before the podcast happens. I'll speed read this absolutely fine. I I literally devoured it. I was wrapped it was one of those instances that as soon as you pick the book up it's just got you it gets its claws into you and it's you just don't want to put it down and for that reason I don't want to give too much away about the book because actually we talk about a lot of it in this episode but we talk about how she got this job how Beck got this job in the White House and it was via an ad and how she blew off her first interview because she was working she was trying to work her way up to be a manager at Lululemon it's just as she says herself it's stranger than fiction but it's also a tale of seizing an opportunity and making the most of it. There's a lot in there and you can see a lot of Beck. She's very supportive of women and she has this whole, there's a really positive vibe of build, building other women up, building up the people that you work with. She is, like I said, she's got great energy. And as you can tell, I mean, this happened, we've had a bit of time between us recording and me recording this introduction. It's been about three weeks and I still feel like I met someone very, very special at 
this particular on this particular day so I hope that you feel this way too and I just think her insights of what it's like to kind of hang out with presidents and the like is just absolutely fascinating and how she made the most of being on this in this whirlwind experience she was there for five years uh, she worked for five years under uh, President Obama and was at the White House for two months of the Trump administration and we talk about that too and yeah how she made the most of it how she actually just didn't get swept up into this machine and actually appreciated these moments as they were happening and part of that is by journaling you know we've talked about this on this podcast before and I really really love the way that she notes down all of her experiences and I we get into it in this episode of the show I hope that you enjoy it. If you do, don't forget you can email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. You can slide into my DMs on social media. I'm at Emma Guns on Twitter, at Emma Guns on Instagram, and I will put the link to join the Facebook group in the show notes, which you will find wherever it is that you are streaming, downloading, and listening to, and hopefully subscribing to this episode. But here she is. I had a ball doing this episode. I really, really did. It's Beck Dory Stein talking about her coming-of-age memoir from the corner of the Oval on The Emma Gunn Show. Now, this is going to be a conversation, listeners. I am joined by the fabulous Beck Dory Stein. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. And the reason we're talking, well, lots of reasons, is because of this incredible book that you've written, which is called From the Corner of the Oval Office, which documents your time working within the Obama administration at the White House. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> which, goodness me. And the story of how you even got this job is is excellent and random and slightly stranger than fiction yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> and yet it continues the book is brilliant thank you and it is a it's I love the way that you've written it and obviously I'm going to put the links to this book in the show notes because I do think it's a really interesting read for anybody whether you are politically minded or not but you tether every chapter to um a moment in time that we would have picked up in the news mm -hmm. in many yeah. ways and yeah. so you're able to um emotionally be there with you because obviously we've lived in those times as well so you know I was doing that at this moment I just think it's like a really clever device was Thank that you. all intended well no I just wasn't that long ago so mm. writing about my life it's it's as present as it gets so yeah uh even though it seems like forever ago that President Obama was president it was actually just a couple of years ago that he left office so I yeah I in my ideal life he is still president yeah. mine too he seemed like the man, but we'll get onto that in a bit. So tell me about how you get this job, because you are, if nothing else, scrappy. Thank you. AF. Yeah, yeah. And this is another thing that I really like about you in the book. I'm like, yeah, I get this. <laughs> and so early on, you had me because you had five jobs and you did this thing, I think, where you would apply for a certain number of jobs every day because you were like, I need to work. Mm -hmm. This just has to be a thing. You were yeah. in Washington, D.C. and you didn't love Washington, D.C.? That uh, right? That's right. And I dedicated it to the scrappy ones because it was like, you got to stay scrappy no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, so in 2012, I had moved to Washington, D.C. for a temporary teaching job. Uh, Sidwell Friends is this elite private school. It's where the Obama girls attended. And 2012, Malia was in middle school and Sasha was in elementary school still. Uh, that can't be right. Maybe she was in middle school. I don't know. Um, but I went there for a tutoring job just for the spring. 
at the upper school and was like, I'll stay here for three months because I didn't love Washington, D.C. It's it's a one-trick pony town, so it's all it all revolves around U.S. politics, and it's very much who do you know and are you well-connected and are you wealthy? And so the opening scene of the book takes place at a bar in mm. D.C. because it's just like, oh, my gosh, like – at happy hour, I just want a cheap drink and to talk to a good friend or a cute boy. And instead you go in and you're just like, oh, okay, everyone's just going to ask, what do you do? And that's that starts or ends the conversation because mm. I had to say, I don't really have a job. Um, and that, that ends a lot of conversations there quite quickly. So in the fall of 2012, I had the part-time tutoring job at Sidwell Friends, but that was not nearly enough money to make rent. So then I picked up four more part-time jobs. So I was substitute teaching at a different school, tutoring at kids' homes, working in a coffee shop, and working 20 hours a week at Lululemon, uh, folding a lot of tank tops that I couldn't even afford. So these girls my age would come in and be like, I'm going to take three of these. And it's like, cool. It's like <laughs> my week's <laughs> pay. Let me just put them in tissue paper. Yeah. Them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we've all been there at one point. Um but yeah, so essentially I was applying to 10 jobs a day thinking I want one job that earns me some respect. And I thought I'll be a lawyer. I was an English major in college. It seemed like an easy enough transition. My friends were doing it and I would wear my hair in a bun. It would just be pretty straightforward. <laughs> and so I applied to one job on Craigslist that was to be a stenographer in a law firm. And I thought eventually I'd work my way up to be a paralegal and then I'd apply to law school and then legally blonde from there. And oh, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is why I'm so on board with you. Like the second I started reading this book, I, like, I completely right? get you. This is all pretty straightforward. <laughs> and so I applied to I applied to this job, and I went in and had to take this uh, test that was sort of like a verbal GRE, and a not a typing GRE. Oh, so it's a if you apply to graduate school in the states, you if it's for an MFA, a creative writing program or something, you have to take a GRE. So it's Oh gosh, uh, it's like analogies and vocabulary. It's not it a like, typing test. Is it like the thing that you have in um, your SATs? Which yes, British yeah. People wouldn't exactly. So it's like the SATs, but then um, the next level because it's for graduate school. We have lots of um, American listeners, so they'll okay, exactly great. Where we are yeah, yeah, yeah. And so. I took the test, but I was so surprised because I thought it was going to be a stenography test where I would have to type pretty fast. And I don't know shorthand, so I was like, well, I'm going to bomb this anyway. <laughs> but it was this random analogy test, but the office smelled like tuna fish. So I was like, okay, I'm definitely not coming back here. And I ended up blowing off the follow-up interview because my shift at Lululemon ran late and I wanted to be a manager there. That seemed much more promising than this boring law firm. Well, does the does the staff discount get greater the higher up the ranks you go? No, and also, I mean, the discount was decent, but I really just didn't have any money, so mm -hmm. it was torture because I would go in there and they'd be like, "You're getting forty percent off," and I was like, "It doesn't. It's still like a forty dollar tank top." Um, and so I blew off the second interview and wrote to the woman on Craigslist and was like, I'm so sorry, but I have five jobs. I'm overbooked. I'm withdrawing my application. So sorry to waste your time. And I did feel terrible because I'd actually blown off this interview. Mm -hmm. And she wrote back when, and I saw the email when I was in the post office and I was so scared to open that email because I was like, she's just going to tell me I'm a terrible person. And she wouldn't be wrong. Who blows off an interview? <laughs> and she actually said, I totally understand. This is actually just to be transparent, a job where you would be traveling with the president on all of his domestic and international trips. 
And I was like, president of what? What are you talking about? Uh, I was so outside the realm of possibility. And I actu- I went home. I was living with two friends from college. And I showed it to my one roommate. And she was like, it's DC. Like, you never really know. You should at least write back. So I wrote back. And within... A week, I was back in there interviewing and groveling for the job and trying not to cry because I was like, I totally blew this one and then got the job somehow. And within a month, I was at the White House. Within three months, I was on Air Force One. When you go back, you realize what the job is. What Was it the kind of the allure of the White House? Were you were you very politically minded? Did you, were you engage with politics generally? I like President Obama. I like to say like I had a value set. I believed in democratic values, uh, liberal values, but I wasn't politically active the way, especially people my age in DC were politically active, mm-hmm. where so many of the people I met there had worked on the Obama campaign in 2008 and I had been teaching high school. Um, so it was sort of like, yes, I'll vote. And I like that guy. But it's not like I'm going to go bang on doors and get involved in the campaign or really learn about issues on more than a rather superficial level. Mm. And so I wasn't drawn to it. I never thought I would work in politics, let alone work at the White House, which made you know for a pretty interesting setting when I show up and it's just like country bumpkin shows up at the White House. Do you think that's how why you were able to navigate it in many ways and kind of do your job and come out relatively unscathed? Because... Maybe maybe you weren't as calculated. Maybe you just were like, I'm a stenographer. This is my job. Yeah, I think I actually had a hard time being a stenographer because I, I identified more at that point as being a teacher. And teachers, you have a classroom and you're engaging with students every day and you're entertaining them and trying to teach them something and trying to make them slightly less horrible as human beings because <laughs> teenagers can be great but also terrible to each other. And so often you know, the most important lessons you have with them is in the hallways when you're like, why are you being so mean? Mm. Like, there's just no need. And I love that. And all of a sudden being at the White House and being so low on the totem pole, I was not supposed to speak. I was supposed to basically blend into the walls. And so for me to be silent when I'm naturally pretty outspoken, that was so difficult. And so I was constantly struggling with this identity as a stenographer. And it's such a bad pun, but it's kind of unavoidable, which is I was typecast in the White House where I was like, everyone was like, oh, she's a stenographer. She must love to type and hate talking to people. (laughs) Um, Because typically when we think of stenographers, especially courtroom stenographers, we think of beehive hairdo and librarian glasses Mm -hmm. and just typing away and not, you know, having much of a social life, which now I'm saying that out loud. I'm like, oh, that's so offensive. And there are some very cool stenographers out there. But um, that's generally the idea we have. And so getting to the White House and thinking, oh, gosh, everyone has this idea of me that's not right. And so I think that was also what inspired me to be writing as much as I Mm. was from the moment I got there. I've always loved to write since I was a kid. But once I was there, I had so much to say. And normally I would just get to say it out loud and say it in a classroom or say it to my friends. But most of my day I was in these incredible rooms with brilliant minds. And I just wasn't allowed to say anything, even if it was someone just being like, hey, do you know where the coffee is? Or can you get me this? It was like, I really was supposed to just stay out of the way. Mm -hmm. You know, so people often say, oh, when, what was it like when you were introduced to the president? I was like, I wasn't introduced to the president. I just sort of blended into the Oval Office walls the first time I got to see him. But you went into the Oval Office, my word. Yeah, and I mean, the first time, and President Obama, to his credit, is amazing. So the first time I went in there, he gave me a head nod because he knew I was new. But the idea being, I really was supposed to be 
quiet all the time. Mm -hmm. And just, I mean, the good part about that is that for a writer, it's a great opportunity to just observe everything. And I never had to worry about being called on. Mm. One of the things I I was curious about, and you've sort of semi-addressed it here, is anything like this, whether it's the administration or I was telling you about a job I had on a magazine before. And the thing that really struck me when I started that job was it, it's like... Um, a train's leaving the station and you grab on and then it just takes you at breakneck speed and you're traveling all over the place doing all these incredible things. I never had a moment to stop. And when I when I was reading your book, I was thinking, maybe I did. Maybe I should have kept a journal about what was going on. <laughs> so I was really impressed that you were able to channel the experience into actually keeping journals and writing. And were you writing essays or was it? I was writing a lot of emails home to my mom. I was writing notes in my phone all the time because early on I realized, oh, if I'm writing in a in a journal, everyone thinks you're some sort of spy. And I qu was quickly approached on Air Force One and someone was like, what are you doing? Because it's like, I'm not, a, I'm not a reporter. I'm not supposed to be writing things down. But everyone's on their phones all the time. So as long as I was typing into my phone and looking really like I had serious business to do, everyone left me alone. Um, even if it was like, this is what we ate on this flight to Asia. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. It was, um, I remember right before I was, I was supposed to start, my dad called and he was so excited for me. And I kind of freaked out and was like, I'm just really nervous about being a stenographer. Like that means I'm typing for a living. And he was like, you get to have a front row seat to history. So I don't know what you like. This is an incredible opportunity. Just you can quit in six months if you hate it. And six months later, it was like, oh my gosh, now I have friends and I have a front seat to history because the beauty of traveling in that circle and going wherever he went was that you also, there's only a handful of staffers who are lucky enough to do it. Mm. So you kind of, your colleagues become your family for better and for worse. So how many stenographers are there? There are five White House stenographers, but um, three are for the president, one is for the vice president, and one is for the first lady. So I was one of President Obama's stenographers. And you used to... Um you used to uh, alternate trips. You didn't go on every single one, did you? That's right. So um, there were three of us for President Obama, so we would all alternate. That being said, my boss Peggy had been doing it since President Reagan, and so she was very generous about, like, I don't need to go on this. Like, I've already been to Vietnam. You can go to Vietnam. Um, and then so mostly I was switching on and off with my colleague Lisa. One of the things that comes out in the book that's really evident is that um, there's a very strong bond between your female colleagues and it's very supportive and obviously there is this character called the rattler mm -hmm. who is maybe not as empowering and as lovely as the other women in the office but it's an incredible dynamic and I um, often say and I've had guests on the show talk about this before if you are a woman who does well in business what's the most important thing you should do and it's always send the elevator back down when you're at the top mm. and it felt like there was a, a real camaraderie and I also, uh, I heard you say something like, I might be the protagonist, but the real heroes of this book are the women that I worked with. Oh, yeah, very much so. I locked down as far as my years in the Obama White House sort of felt like college where you come together with all these people where it's like, I never would have gotten to meet these people. Um, they come from this set of diverse backgrounds and interests. Uh, my one good friend, Hope, who is definitely one of the heroes of the book, she's this complete hippie from California who, I mean, she's older than I am. I just can't imagine our paths crossing at, a, at some other venue, except, of course, she was in the Obama White House. I mean, her name is Hope. 
So <laughs> she had to be there. Uh, but yeah, the Rattler I kept in, and she's named the Rattler because uh, she has bangles, like a sleeve of bangles. So she makes this rattlesnake sound whenever she comes near. And I was so bummed because I knew who she was before I got the job. And I thought she was the coolest, and I was so excited, much like Obama himself, where I was mm-hmm. so excited to meet him in person and then kind of freaked out that he wasn't going to be that great. And he turned out to be that great. But the Rattler was such a bummer in real life because uh, it was very clear that I guess she had her own set of issues, but mm-hmm. she was not a fan of mine or, more importantly, a fan of any young woman in the administration, which I like to say, like, I'm pretty unspoken, like, that can bend people one way or the other, but my friend Shilpa, also in the book, is like, the sweetest person in the world and like not liking her is like not liking an ice cream cone. Like she's just great. (laughs) And the Rattler wasn't nice to her. So it's just like, okay, clearly this is on the Rattler. Um, But I wrote about her as much as I did one, because it, it was therapeutic to be like, okay, here's what happens when you're excited about someone and they turn out to be different in real life. But also she was this great contrast because in the beginning she kind of overwhelmed my narrative about, high-powered women in the White House where I was like, well, she could have been great, but she's Mm. not nice. And she has a male assistant and she constantly is promoting the young men and not the young women. And she's kind of the ultimate gatekeeper for young women of all things instead of elevating them. And in the beginning, that's kind of all I could see. And then the longer I was in the Obama White House, I was like, oh, no, no, she is the exception to the rule because there are all of these other women around where they are doing their jobs and constantly looking for ways Mm. to help younger women or mentor young women. And so that's why I was like, I need to write about the Rattler, but also mostly because then she's such a great contrast to all of these incredible Mm. women who I had to force into being my friend. But once they were, they just, you know, they, they got me across the finish line and they're the reason why I was able to write this book. It's a, it's, um, it's really interesting reading her in contrast to, the rest of the women in the book, definitely. Yeah, and I thought, I mean, it's like, oh, I just, I wish that I didn't have to write about her because it'd be cooler if there were no Rattler. But unfortunately, I think it's also important to recognize when in this feminism wave that I think is exciting and it's happening right now, there's also this sense of like, and you also have to kind of call out women who aren't doing their part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think most women, unfortunately, have encountered a Rattler. So it was mm-hmm. also sort of this... Um, I don't know, all of my friends are like, oh gosh, I'm a lawyer or I work in a shop and of course there's a Rattler there. So everyone can kind of identify that for themselves. Have you been able to sort of just knock it down to or just um, file it as she's just massively insecure and it had nothing to do with me? Now I can, now that I have had a little perspective. But at the time Mm. you're traveling on this plane, there's 15 people. She's a senior staffer. And I just really wanted her to like me in a way that I think, especially young women, were so desperate to be liked a lot of the time. And yeah, of course, now it's like, oh, that's her problem. Uh, And even through the book, I kind of evolved to get there. But it took a long time Mm -hmm. to figure out, okay, this isn't about me. Like, It's hard when it's women on women in that kind of scenario, because it's looks and it's vibes and it's intangibles but you very much so yeah yeah yeah, uh even I mean I loved I loved the way she dressed and so then I was trying to emulate the way she dressed and I think that really bothered her because it was like I was the younger version of her um versus Jen Palmieri was another senior staff woman who 
also had this great sense of style and was wearing bright colors. And when I wore bright colors to try to be like Jen, Jen was always like, Beck, like cute shoes or cute jacket. You know, like she was just on it. She was excited for me. Mm. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. But good that you can kind of, I think if you do have those experiences with people, you never recreate it. You never fall into that trap because we all get into jobs or situations where maybe we feel insecure. And it's kind of a really easy, unfortunately, thing to become spiky and defensive. Spiky, yes. (laughs) Write it down. Um, But you can always, but once you've seen somebody do it, you can um, navigate away from it quite easily. Yeah. And I've caught myself, I mean, I grew up playing sports. And so even just when I was a senior soccer player and there was a really great freshman, I was like, oh, I just want to hate her. But she was really great. And then at the end of the day, it's like, same team. Mm -hmm. We're all working here together. So it's actually... It takes up a lot less headspace, mental space, if it's just like, I'm going to cheer for her and I'm going to help her and eventually we're all going to be better for it. Mm. I watched an interview recently and it was David Letterman talking to Obama and he talked about the first briefing. And it's when when you... Oh, after the inauguration, you get the first briefing, and and he was, oh poor Obama yeah, was <laughs> talking about um, it's the briefing that changes lives, or I forget what the exact note was, and I wondered, obviously you wouldn't have had that kind of briefing, but was there after that first day, or was there anything about that sort of going into that world where you do look back and think, yeah, actually that was a very defining moment in terms of. I was a very different person when I came out of that building on that first day or after the first Oh, weeks. no. Kind of the opposite. I mean, there was, there was certainly no briefing. I was just sort of thrown into the deep end of the pool. Uh, and it was an election year. It was 2012. So President Obama was campaigning. And my boss, who was great, but she was just like, you got to get on the plane. You got to go do the thing. Um, you got to learn because we are traveling nonstop. And so it was much more constantly finding myself in sink or swim moments Mm. and you just you slowly learn but there's I mean it's a it's a learning curve for sure there's no one moment where you're like okay I got it now although I guess I remember you'll you can relate to this I'm always searching for good audio outlets and Mm -hmm. when President Obama would do an interview with a TV reporter we would have to oftentimes ask can we plug in um can we share your audio and most of the time people were great. And then I just remember there was this one uh, TV station that was like, no, we can't give you audio. And I was still new. And so it was like, I wasn't, and they said no. And I was like, no, no, no. I work for the president. You're giving me audio. I have a very important job. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't about me. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't trying to advocate for myself, which I think made it easier. It was like, no, this is for the presidential archive. Mm-hmm. This is for the White House. You don't get to tell me you're not giving me audio. You're giving me audio. Um, and sort of realizing because it was easy for me to be like, I don't have an important job. I'm not important. Mm. But at the end of the day, having an accurate recording of what the president's saying on the record uh, is quite important. So it was mm-hmm. like, no, I have to I have to stand up for this, not for me, but for him. Mm-hmm. And after you started working at the White House, did people react differently in bars when they were like, hey, what do you do? Did you say? <laughs> yes and no, because... I think if I had been anywhere else, like when I went home to Philadelphia or went to New York, people were like, wow, that's so cool. What's he like? But in D.C., it's so competitive and just such a nutty place that I was in Trader Joe's and it was normally because I didn't want to get into politics. Um, if someone asked me what I did, I 
I came up with a variety of lies. So for a while I was a teacher, <laughs> but then I got caught because I was in a cab and it was like the middle of a Tuesday during the school year. And he was like, well, why aren't you teaching if you're a teacher? And I was like, oh, good point. <laughs> and then I said I was a veterinarian, but then people were like, oh, well, I have this sick cat. Like, what do you think I should do? And I was like, I can't tell people I'm a vet because then they just tell me all of their pet problems. <laughs> and then I was a big horse veterinarian, but then I met someone with a horse farm. So it was just eventually I found myself in Trader Joe's. Do you guys have Trader Joe's here? No, grocery stores. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, it's um, a grocery store. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I was there and the the guy ringing me up was like, so what do you do? And I was like, I work in the White House. And he was like, well, do you actually work in the White House or do you work in the EEOB, which is the building next to the White House? And it was such a, like, it's all about status. Mm -hmm. So it was this funny thing where I was like, man, like that's not even good enough. And yeah. also like this guy's bagging my groceries and calling me out on not working in the actual White House. And it was one of those funny moments where I was like, only in D.C., is the guy at Trader Joe's like kind of looking down on me for working in the EEOB and not the actual White House? But the EEOB is the building next to the White House. It's it? on the same campus. You have to have like the same credentials. I had a blue badge, which means I work. My office is in the EEOB because that's where I think like ninety percent of the offices are. Um, the White House is actually quite small. The West Wing is very small. Most offices don't have windows. Uh, it's it's quite antiquated for how many people it takes to run an, a, an effective government, an effective White House. The way you described the EEOB as well made me want to go and visit it. It's <laughs> a beautiful building. It takes up a whole city block. When my parents came to visit at the end of the Obama administration, and it's got these great black and white marble floors, and they click clack, and it feels like a Hitchcock film. And my mom was... I took them there and then I took them to the West Wing. My mom's like, I much prefer the EEOB. Like it's such a prettier <laughs> building because the West Wing really is just a bunch of offices and they don't have windows. And we had a really great uh, view of the sunset every night, which was always my selling point when people were like, oh, but you work in the EEOB. I was like, I get sunsets. <laughs> um, now, three months after you start working there, you are on Air Force One with the president. That, and that's a lot of responsibility because you're not just there traveling with them, observing. You have to get down every word. Right. And so, yeah, so everyone's always like, oh, you got to fly on Air Force One, which is very cool. It's a beautiful plane. It's run by active duty military. So the pilot can turn the plane on its side. It's a 747. He can turn it on its side if we come under attack. And the flight attendants are all active duty military, so they always get your order right. Uh, and they're also just like so on it all the time. So there was one time I got really sick and they were bringing me chicken noodle soup and Gatorade nonstop and just asking me how I was. Do you call them ravens? Air Force ravens are the ones protecting the plane, so okay. they have their own cabin. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of different – there's – I don't know how many cabins, but the ravens have their own – section of the plane but then the flight attendants are kind of roaming and they're like the parents you may or may not have had but definitely wanted and they're just so caring and the longer you're on the plane it's like having being a regular at a cool coffee shop where you know eventually they just like bring you the coffee that you wanted or the white russian yeah or the white <laughs> russian well i had to bring my own kalua on the plane because they didn't normally have space for kalua but yeah what's a cape codder by the way cape codder is just uh vodka cranberry and then someone gave me guff and said what I actually drank was a fancy Cape Codder because it's vodka, cranberry, and soda. Okay. <laughs> but that was sort of my, yeah, before. that was my regular drink. It <laughs> was my drink of choice. Uh, but yeah, flying on that plane was crazy, but it was also very much I had a job to do. And mm -hmm. so it was cool to fly on the plane, but there was always, even when things were under control, there was a constant buzz mm -hmm. of adrenaline and sort of the things being under control when you're working for the president are never that under control. There's mm -hmm. a constant swirl that you're just trying to keep 
uh, at bay and try to just get one foot in front of the other and follow protocol and figure it out. But 24-hour news cycle, trying to keep tabs on the entire world as well as the country, there's a lot going on. And so my role as stenographer was to always have my microphone ready and there was usually a press gaggle, which is an informal briefing by the press secretary on the plane with the reporters who also fly with us, 13 reporters. Um, and so it was constantly just like, okay, am I ready to go? And even when it's a red-eye 14-hour uh, flight, it doesn't matter. Like you can fall asleep, but also when you fall asleep, you're so nervous the whole time that what if something happens and what if there's a gaggle and are you going to miss the gaggle and what if the president comes back and how many times has the president seen me just like drowning in my own puddle of drool? It's all part of the glamour. <laughs> um, I just think it must just be adrenaline cortisol just to the max. Yeah, no one lost weight so much when we were traveling at the way. It's funny, I've seen a bunch of my colleagues and like everyone has lost so much weight because no one is nearly as stressed and everyone's sleeping a lot more, leading much more healthy lives now. Because at the time, yeah, it's like you're flying to China, so you're taking a sleeping pill and then you get there and you're like, okay, let's have 11 cups of coffee before we start this day because we didn't get to sleep in a bed last night. So lots of highs and lots of lows and trying to navigate all of that while being a human being and also trying to think quickly on your feet for the president. It's a lot to balance. You also get a real sense in the book that they, um, you referenced it already that you have an impression about what President Obama's like and you don't want him to fall short and you can definitely feel in the way you write about him, he was on a pedestal but he didn't give you any opportunity during the time you work with him to fall off it. it yeah, like he earned that cool pedestal. Guy. Yeah, he really earned it because there were a lot of times where, I mean, especially traveling with him, you see everyone's worst side. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's very strange to be on a plane and it's sort of 6 p.m., but it's sort of 3 a.m., depending on which time zone you're in. And here comes your boss's boss in like his flannel pajama pants. And you're just supposed to be like, hello, secretary. Like, this is fine. Um, and so because of that, even the president and, you know, he was like seven bosses away from me. Mm -hmm. uh, I got to see him enough on the road and he just never lost his cool. And even when things were overwhelming and when everyone else was exhausted and we weren't nearly as on as he had to be, you know, he's the one going to the plenary sessions and talking to heads of state and having to navigate these minefields mm. and not slip up. Uh, he just did this beautiful job uh, kind of in every, every situation, every context. So yeah, he was on a pedestal, but he earned it and he kept it and I will, you know, I'll fight that. And you also had, um, a, a relationship with the president in the sense of you worked out, <laughs> not necessarily together, yeah, yeah. but there would it be this thing where you, you are a runner. You like to run first thing in the morning and tell me about the first time that you. Yeah. So away. So president Obama and I, I don't know how much we have in common, but I think we both sort of, dealt with the crazy work schedule and made it feel slightly normal and slightly under control by working out in the morning. And that was sort of, especially on the road, it's like, okay, the day officially starts at 8 or 9 a.m., but that means if I get to the hotel gym early enough and get a run in, no one can take that away from me. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's often what I would do and often what he would do. And so the first time he spoke to me was actually on a treadmill in a hotel gym. And I thought at first it was the secret service agent and I had just done this crazy run and I was really sweaty. And this agent is like, I thought you'd be faster than that. And I turned to say something 
I'm sure it would have been very clever, but I turn and it's not a Secret Service agent. It's President Obama and my jaw just drops to the floor and he's waiting. Like he like he has that sparkle in his eye and he knows that he's like got me and I don't say anything cool. I just sort of flee the room and then it's only later in the elevator that I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even wipe down my machine. It's just like covered in my sweat and he'll never trust the new stenographer and now I have this reputation as like sweaty mute girl that can't think of anything clever. And that was the first time we interacted and I was like, ace that one. Um, did you go back and wipe down the machine? No. <laughs> no, I wrote, to, I wrote to like his body man and I was like, can you wipe down his machine for me? <laughs> Which I don't think he appreciated. He was like, I'm not here for you. Stenographer. Uh, two strikes. <laughs> I'm not here for you. I'm here for this guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can wipe down your own damn machine. Yeah. So uh, over the course of five years, though, that funny treadmill relationship sort of evolved. Mm. So then it was like, we would always see each other. It'd always just be like, good morning. Or he'd say something like, oh, how'd you get here before me? Or how far are you going today? Or how fast are you going? Um, just competitive nonsense that gym rats like to say to each other. Uh, and then by the end of five years, it was really sweet. Where then I remember one time uh, he gave me this like twinkle wave mm. where he wiggled all of his fingers and to any normal person would be like, cool. See you later, POTUS. But I was so excited because he normally only gives that wave to his daughters. And I was like, oh, my God. He just gave me the Sasha and Malia wave. That means I like this girl. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, I feel comfortable enough with her that I can give her the twinkle wave. And she won't go on a podcast and tell everyone about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It just seems like, yeah, he just seems like he was a cool guy in terms of those little moments, those sort of. And that's what I think people are really hungry for with somebody mm-hmm. like him is that like the down moments, not the minute, the moments when he's on, when you see him, but the sort of little, the asides where you catch. Yeah. And he was person. so good at those. And I think he, he loved those moments because a big part of being president is constantly, you know, giving speeches and being this leader mm-hmm. behind a podium. And he was great at that. He's this amazing orator, but he's also very much a people person. And he mm-hmm. was working that hard every day for eight years because he really believed in giving a voice to people who might not have a voice for themselves in government. And so he loved going out on the road and just meeting with normal people who weren't DC creatures and who weren't slippery and were just working hard every day trying to make rent. Uh, So I remember one time we had to go to Washington State. There had been this terrible mudslide in Oso. And I remember my motorcade driver they're volunteer motorcade drivers for the press van. And my motorcade driver was pretty lukewarm on the president. He was like, oh, well, my sister-in-law asked if I wanted to do this. And I said, yes, because, like, why not? And so I I was like, well, what do you think? And he's like, he's, he's fine. He's not very personable. And I was like, oh, have you met him? And he was like, no, but, like, you can just tell. Like, because, you know, every once in a while compared to, say, Bill Clinton, people were like, oh, President Obama is pretty standoffish and he doesn't go around to the cocktail parties in Washington, D.C. because instead he was having dinner with his family every night. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so motorcade drivers, the perk of being a volunteer motorcade driver for the day is you do get a group photo with the president. And it turned out my motorcade driver had served in the Vietnam War. And so I wrote to my friend who was always sort of right next to the president and was like, hey, like my motorcade driver is the tall guy with the beard. And he was in Vietnam because if you served, uh, the president will give you a coin. 
And so I coordinated it. And so this driver ended up getting a coin. It was funny because I was just sitting in the van. And so he comes back from the photo and I was like, so how was it? And his whole face was just like glowing. And he (laughs) was so happy. And he was fighting back tears. And he was like, he's just the nicest man. He is such a kind man. And you could just tell it all shifted getting to actually interact with him. Mm. And I think most people, if not everyone who's gotten to interact with him is like, well, yeah, he is, he's cool on television, but he's When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply even better in person because wow. I mean he's got that comedic timing and he has that uh, authenticity that you don't often see with politicians what I've noticed about when he does interviews on TV and maybe as someone like David Letterman so it's not mm-hmm. like a hard-hitting political journalist is he drives very quickly in that exchange he takes over the yeah it's yeah so interesting to watch and he's always paying attention because I think um, I saw parts of that and I remember Letterman mm. speaks about Obama before Obama comes out mm. and then as soon as Obama came out he was immediately like referencing what Letterman had said uh, when he had been backstage he's so sharp he's just constant he's paying attention to everything mm. you got to travel the world you got to go to the most incredible places and there's a brilliant brilliant uh, friend of yours who was with you who you're running and I forget where you were but you were oh in Burma yeah look up look up yeah you're only like you've got five seconds but just look up yeah so that was uh Burma in 2012 or 2013 I was still pretty new it was my first Asia trip the first of like seven that we did and I was so jet lagged we had been in Thailand the night before then we were in Burma for I think it was like 16 hours we didn't even sleep there and then we continued and it was so hot and we had been holding in this little tiny hallway for like two hours then just to do a pool spray, which is a photo op of the president that lasted maybe 30 seconds. So you're holding in this, you're waiting in this little hallway and you're sweating and you're getting covered in like these big cameraman sweat and you haven't eaten <laughs> and you're so thirsty and you're like, I can't believe I signed up for this. Like, it's funny when my friends at home are like, you have such a glamorous job. Like, I wish I could just show them what life is actually like. Yeah. And so we finished this 30-second photo opportunity where he didn't even say anything. So I was like, I didn't even have to be there for that. And then the press wranglers who are Obama staffers who uh, are the ones in charge of the press, they're like, all right, let's go. You have to run. You have to run. You have to get back to the motorcade. And so we're running, and I'm just kind of looking down at the ground and luckily, Carolyn Castor, who is a photographer for the Associated Press, she called over. She was like, Beck, look up. Look at this. And I look over, and there's this huge golden Buddha that is multiple stories high that I would have just run right by without seeing. And luckily for Carolyn, she was like, this is why we're here. Like, 
you have to take the extra half second to look up around you. Don't listen to the press wranglers. Look up. Mm -hmm. When you're here, when you're traveling, you have to look up and kind of be present in the moment. And she was, I mean, I love that scene because I just remember that feeling of like going from, this is a stupid job. This is a stupid (laughs) place. I'm so thirsty to like, oh my God, that Buddha, I can't believe we're here. And just sort of realizing how lucky I was to be there. And President Obama was the same way on that same trip. We had a packed schedule and we were flying in and he looked down and he saw the top of a pagoda and he was like, are we going to that? And the staffers were like, oh no, we don't have time. And he was like, we're in Burma. We're going to go to the oldest pagoda. (laughs) And so we went on this OTR, which isn't off the record. But I mean, from the president on down, it was amazing when people appreciated like, this isn't going to last forever and it's easy to keep your head down and just think, okay, step A, step B, but it's so important to kind of look up and take in the culture and get Mm. to meet as many people as possible. And that's just a brilliant moment because I think we can all relate to the fact that we've gone places in a rush and then miss things. Right. And it's so, I mean, it makes so much sense. It's like, I got to rush to this meeting and I got to rush to this meeting and a day or a week or a year later, you're like, I don't remember anything about that meeting, but I do remember there was this really cool girl on the way there who was like, oh, cool. Good luck. Nice to meet you. I like your shoes. And she was really nice. And now we're friends. <laughs> so are you better now? Like even, t- I know you've got a packed schedule while you're in the UK. You kind of go going from place A to place B. Are you trying to take in the, uh, the acoustic monument? room? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, luckily I've been to London before and I think, Part of what I learned with that trip is that because when we went to these places, it was so rare that we were doing anything that normal travelers get to do. And so instead, you just sort of get to embrace what you are getting to experience. So it's like, no, I'm not going to Big Ben, but I get to do this interview with you. So mm-hmm. then I'm t- I'm taking you in wholeheartedly, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. <laughs> well, Willfully given. Yeah. Um, now, in and amongst all of this, you're traveling the world. You are on a plane every... Side note, were you ever frightened traveling with the president? No. Secret Service really kind of put you at ease. It's amazing when you have all of these guys. There's Secret Service who are in suits, and they're right around the president and kind of everywhere. And they've gone, they've flown out two weeks before he even gets there, and it's just like this expansive, invisible web of security. Um, so between that and the pilot, the, like one of the best pilots in the world that can turn the 747 on its side, you feel pretty good most mm-hmm. of the time. Um, and the only time I guess I was frightened and I wasn't, but in Kenya, we weren't allowed to leave the hotel premises because there had been uh, rampant kidnappings uh, of Westerners. So they, so Secret Service, it was the one time Secret Service was like, stay at the hotel, mm-hmm. um, don't go out. But that was fine too, because luckily we had Secret Service telling yeah. us that. So it was sort of like traveling the world with some very tough, very fit big brothers that were not going to let anything bad happen to you. Who you used to play basketball with? Those were the staffers. Uh, Secret Service, oh my gosh, if Secret Service had played basketball with us, they would have destroyed us. No, it was a bunch of nerdy uh, West Wingers playing basketball together. And were you the only woman on the team? Yeah, I, I started, when I got the job, I had this very serious relationship and my boyfriend love he, I mean he was the opposite of me he loved politics loved campaigns and so he was constantly leaving DC to go work on campaigns for six months nine months and I missed him terribly and was like okay I have to make new friends I have to pick up more hobbies mm-hmm. and so I started playing basketball I played in high school and so I started playing with a bunch of guys from the White House um, and that's how I ended up with this great group of guy friends that I traveled with as well um I in amongst all of this, you weave in, there is this story. It's not really 
woven. It's just it happened. You have your boyfriend, but then there's also the um, charming man who catches your attention, but you obviously capture his at the same time. Thank you for that. Everyone's like, oh, <laughs> he captured your attention. I'm like, I think it was mutual. <laughs> no, I think I reading the book, yeah. he totally was like, Bing, 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 yeah. his radar, like, like, like Top Gun. I've got a lock. I've got a lock on Beck. He obviously, like, he, there was something about you that he really liked and he pursued you, but he ran hot and cold. Um, and the thing I like about the way you describe it is obviously there's overlap and you don't shy away from being honest. And there's that saying, isn't there? Don't leave out your life. Don't leave out the part of your life story where you, you get it wrong. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's in there. There's a and lot you, I got wrong absolutely lay it all out from what obviously I don't know we'll chat offline but the way that you lay it out you could potentially come off not great because of the fact you were already in a relationship but I completely understand when you paint the picture of traveling on um, Air Force One having this really tight group of people who are just working in the White House all the time that it would be inevitable. Thank you. Yeah, I think, um, so I had this great boyfriend, Sam, but he was constantly doing these campaigns and leaving for six, nine months. Um, and then on top of that, then I had this insane work schedule, which made it even harder to visit him. And then on top of that, when you find yourself in Southeast Asia for two weeks, and it takes a lot of people to make the president look good, and we often look horrible and feel horrible, his staffers. And no one's really paying attention to like how you're doing or how you're feeling or if you've been fed or if you have a bottle of water after four hours in a terrible sweaty hold. Um, and so because of that, this guy, Jason, who was senior staff and very charming and everyone loved him and he was just like disarming and how uh, kind he was to everyone in the room, he kind of swooped in and he was the first person to be like, I see you. How are you doing? How's your trip going? Like, are you okay? And it was just like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is having like a really great teammate and how nice it is to be noticed, especially the stenographer and not supposed mm -hmm. to say anything. And here was this guy who was like, no, I think you're pretty cool. And here was someone, and it was like the popular boy in high school suddenly calling out the nerdy freshman being like, no, I think you're cool. Like, come sit with me. Um, so yeah, it was a slippery, tricky time. Was that his MO? he would shine his light on the person who was maybe new um in hindsight maybe I think I was also he and I were both sort of um wacky characters in that world and so I think there was sort of a kindred spirit of neither of us ever planned to work in politics and here we were um but he was he was a notorious flirt for sure when you say wacky characters and do you mean you had no intention of having political careers either of you or were there other elements um, I think we were we had the same sense of humor, which, again, it's the White House. People are pretty buttoned up, and we were just sort of like, ah, let's do this. <laughs> Have you guys seen this movie? It's really good. It's called Elf, like that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, get, sending gifts to people. Yeah, like just, the, yeah. you know. Only having conversations and gifts, which is like 90% yeah. of my friends. And just being really friendly and not having much of um, much pretense. Interesting. Yeah. Um, why did you decide to include it? And why did the you... The relationship? Yeah. Because uh, I couldn't write this book without the relationship. Mm -hmm. It's very much a coming-of-age story set in the White House, mm -hmm. and I feel like a big part of growing up and coming of age is making big mistakes and falling in love with the wrong guy. I think we all do it at one point or another, and 
oh, I just had so many feelings about it and was so guilt-stricken and ashamed. And then looking back, especially writing the book and connecting the dots backwards, it was like, yeah, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, he's really charming and I was young and he's just my type and we were in all these far-flung places and I was jet-lagged. And you get so, not lonely in like a desperate way, but just sort of like none of my friends back home can possibly understand mm. what this is like right now. And there's only a handful of people who can understand it. And here's this guy that I'm desperately attracted to knocking on my door, asking if I'm okay after, you know, tripping on the sidewalk. <laughs> I totally got it. And I could see you can, as you're reading it, um, obviously not having known you beforehand, you're reading it and go, I can see this happening. And then at the end of one chapter, right, you just wrote something like the triangle of light. I'm like, oh, God damn. You yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. But it, But you can completely see why it is this kind of, bubble well and I think also it's a bubble and then um yeah my friends it's funny because my friends at the time were like we could just throw you into the river how many times you've made the same mistake and rationally I knew I was like he's not going to leave his girlfriend this isn't really going to go anywhere even if he's saying differently and I'm feeling differently um but because we're in that bubble and because we were traveling to these places. It was so difficult. And so at one point I was like, maybe I should just leave. Like if I just leave, I want, and then it's like, I can't leave Obama just because there's some guy I happen to be desperately in love with. Like, I'm just going to have to fight through it or just give in to the idea that I'm going to make mistakes for as long as I'm here. So yeah, it was a lot to wrestle with. <laughs> it feels like that's a big uh, element of working in the White House at that time, which is just every, and even you've described it during our conversation here, where you get in there and at some point your your allegiance to Obama becomes so strong. And I wonder whether other element, elements of your life, I think you've talked about it before, where people not going to their children's birthday parties right. because you realize you're doing something monumentally important well he was doing something monumentally <laughs> important and i was recording it but also that idea of he only has so much time in office mm. so people have asked me oh do you miss it and it's like well i i didn't leave even though i was a stenographer and had kind of outgrown the job and wanted to pursue writing or go back to teaching i didn't leave because it was like i can't give up seeing what he does every day and up close mm. i can't give up my front seat to history and I'll have, you know, potentially fatal FOMO if I leave. But when President Trump came in, I was like, okay, peace out. I don't need to. See, I don't need to see this up close. <laughs> we'll come back to Trump yeah. in a minute. Um, about three quarters of the way through the book, the the tone really changes because you realize it's like we have limited time. Mm -hmm. And it felt like that obviously the tone changed in the White House as well. It's sort of like being in college when you're a freshman or a sophomore and you're like, oh, I'm going to be here forever for better or for worse. And all of a sudden it's senior spring and you're like, oh, God, <laughs> it's, it's all fun. ending. <laughs> um, was that, that must have, that must have really changed things. And did everything hold a bit more importance? Like this is the last time I'll do this. Or? So much so. And also some of my friends started leaving. So Shilpa, one of my best friends and my housemate was like, all right, it's time to go back to law school. Like if I don't enroll this fall, I have to wait till next year. So I'm going to leave. So she left, I think six months before the administration ended. And that was sort of the beginning of the end where it was like, right, people have to move on with their lives. We're all going to have to move on from this. This isn't lasting forever. Mm -hmm. And very much, I mean, especially having lived through 
graduation myself and then teaching in a high school and you see these senior girls just clinging on for dear life and crying with each other. I was That was basically me, where I was like, I can't believe this is ending. This can't end. And I know we've talked about President Obama, but we also have to talk about Michelle Obama, who just seems like a badass as well. She is. Is that inappropriate to call her a badass? No. I apologize. Good. I don't think so. <laughs> I'll sign off from you. Yeah. Good. <laughs> um, but you hung out with her a little bit too. A little bit. I mean, I wasn't... Um, hanging out is a little uh casual for our relationship barefoot margaritas watching elf yeah (laughs) right um no so she had her own stenographer there were five and so my colleague traveled with her but luckily my colleague was a human being who every once in a while got sick and so then i got to travel with uh flotus the first lady and that was really exciting because it's just um she has a much smaller team and so it's a more intimate group Mm -hmm. and so i remember getting on her plane and it's a smaller plane and um, just kind of keeping my head down because, again, I was the new girl all over again. Mm. And I get on the plane and I'm just like, stay cool. Don't say anything. Just look down. And the flight attendant was like, can I offer you a Frappuccino? And I was like, what? And he was like, oh, we have Starbucks caramel Frappuccinos. And I was like, I love traveling with women. <laughs> like, it was like, of course you have caramel Frappuccinos. Um, and that was sort of, that's kind of set the tone of like the beauty of the East Wing and the First Lady is that she got to choose what she talked about mm-hmm. as opposed to President Obama, where it's like at, to a certain point, he was exposed to the elements of what was happening in the world, but she really got to, for the most part, choose her agenda. And so it was a fun, uh, great group of mostly women. And I got to travel with her too. Uh, high school, which I was very excited about. And I I think there's no tougher audience than a bunch of teenagers. And she just immediately had them wrapped and then a second later had them laughing and then a second later had them promising to work harder in school. Yeah. And so seeing that was so inspirational, just like, yep, real deal. And the, you know, her dynamic with the president is so perfect mm. where they're so funny. And I think he's hilarious and the only person funnier than him is her. And she's just is constantly getting him in a way that I'm like, oh yeah, relationship goals. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed it in the David Letterman interview. Um, Obama makes reference to Michelle about doing going back into politics in a different or something. And he says, oh, I couldn't do that because of Michelle. Yeah. Or there's go or there'd be Michelle. And I think a lot of the audience interpreted it as a uh, it as Michelle 2020. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I think I think Letterman asked if he could if he would run again or mm-hmm. like and he was like, no, because constitutionally I can't. And also Michelle. Yes. And that was not because Michelle is going to run as unless things have drastically changed. <laughs> but from what I know of her and what I respect so much about her is she was like, this is my husband's career. I don't love politics. I she, She's very authentic. And I think a big part of being political is you have to navigate the gray in a way that I think is really difficult. Um, and I, I think she feels the same way where it's just like, no, like if you're on my team, you're on my team. But also if you're Mitch McConnell and saying horrible things, don't expect me to shake your hand. So... Which I love, but I think that's why she's like, no, thank you, politics. And also, she's already seen it. She's seen that world. Yeah. She's lived in the White House. It's a fishbowl. It's exhausting. She has other things to do. But if she did, would you be like John Cusack out on Pennsylvania Avenue with a... With oh, yeah. I think she'd be great, but I also I'll just totally you. respect her for <laughs> having other aspirations. Yeah. Completely. Now, let's talk about the... the um, you say in the book, I didn't know my last day in the White House was going to be my last day. Is so what happened? Oh, I got fired and it was super embarrassing. No, I did not. Um, I, yeah, no, I had been writing the whole time. And so um, 
the silver lining for me when Trump won is that it was sort of like, well, if Trump can win, which none of us were expecting, I can probably write better than I think I can. And it's now or never. So I need to actually take myself seriously as a writer or I don't go apply to law school. You know, it's like one or the other. Um, and so I couldn't stay and work in the white. I knew I wasn't going to be able to stay and work for him for any long period of time, uh, nor did I want to. And so that was when I started taking the initial steps to how do I write a book? What's the, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And so that was in November when he won. And so then in February, March, um, I submitted a book proposal and I was typing a Sean Spicer press briefing and my literary agent called and said, you've typed your last briefing, you just got a book deal. So that was when I got to walk out. Mic drop. Mic drop. I know. And it's great because I always carried a microphone. So I was like, mic drop, actually, here's my microphone and now it's on the ground. <laughs> now I feel like, I feel okay about saying what I'm about to say next because you've referenced Harry Potter before. Oh, yeah. So I feel like you will understand where I'm going with this and I hope listeners you bear with this too. Was the shift in administration, the change from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, like when... Dumbledore to Voldemort? Yep. Yep. Yeah, except I will say Voldemort. Uh, I was going to say, the her name has completely skipped my... Um, the woman with the cats, you know exactly who... Do, um, Dolores. Uh, you know, who, yeah. who made Harry... Umbridge? Umbridge, that's yeah. it. Was it like um, Dumbledore to Umbridge? Oh, interesting. Um some yeah yeah I don't know the whole feeling was much yeah yeah I think so (laughs) I'm thinking more uh, there was like this overwhelming sense of it all going to hell and being like there's no escape and so it wasn't just even one scene or one character but it was also like the Dementors were there and the Death Eaters were there like everyone was present it was just like oh we're not going to come back from this. Just kidding. We will. But uh, there's, it's going to be a process. Um, you talk as well. There was a lot of yelling. I've heard you say that the White House went from being quite a respectable. Yeah, no drama Obama. <laughs> he kept it very cool, even when things were a swirl. Like he, he knew part of being a leader was keeping things um, as under control as possible and being poised and eloquent under pressure. And from day one in the uh, Trump White House, it was just sort of this insanity uh, where you would hear yelling through the walls. I think everyone was frustrated and they didn't know what they were doing. Very few of his staff, if any, came from a government background. And so they just didn't understand most things that were expected of them. And they were entirely understaffed because, again, they didn't know any of the nuts and bolts of the transition because they had gone out of their way to not coordinate with the Obama administration during the transition. Mm. And there were tons of young uh, recent college graduates who had been kind of recruited from the RNC, the Republican Party, um, to go work for Trump, even though they didn't necessarily want him to win. They might have had a different candidate in mind, but then because they were so understaffed, they were like, okay, you're 22. Do you want to go work at the White House? Uh, so I was dealing mostly with 22-year-olds who were like, yeah, I never thought I'd be here, and I don't really like Trump, but here I am. Um, and wow. so they were kind of undermining each other and eye-rolling and, again, had no idea what they were doing. That must be so tough to have been in such a smooth running. Yeah, and also to not have any witnesses to it because I was by myself. All my friends were political appointees in the Obama administration, so they were all gone. And I was flying solo through the West Wing looking into these empty offices where all of my friends had sat doing really important jobs. And I'm like, wait, but if they're not here, who's doing this? (laughs) And, you know, seeing the people I did see, and I was like, you don't know what you're doing. And also you're not here for the right reasons. 
as they, you know, opened the door to their Maserati and drove off. <laughs> oh, that's a great line in the book about how the um, the car park. Yeah. Park so in between the uh, EEOB, the executive Eisenhower Executive Office Building, and the White House, there senior parking, and you know. After five years there, I knew all the cars. I knew who they belonged to. And it's just a bunch of American-made kind of unimpressive cars. <laughs> you know, it's like what you would see at the uh, soccer field for mm -hmm. moms picking up their kids. And then all of a sudden it was these very impressive cars that you're like, wow, it's a bunch of rich people in here now, which wouldn't be so bad, except it also just, I think, more reflected how most of Trump's staff was coming from uh, – the hedge fund banking world, mm. which especially after the recession was an interesting choice of staffers. Such a choice. There's one thing observing um, the inauguration and something that I, oh, I watched President Obama and Michelle Obama welcome the Trumps into their home. Uh, and yeah. that is just such a lesson in class. And I um, obviously they had very different politics but well, and also Trump had been the leader of the birther movement. So it wasn't even just politics. It was like he had really gone after President Obama. Well, what going back a presidency, uh, George W. Bush and Obama were not aligned. Mm -hmm. But the relationship between the, the Obamas and the Bushes now is so right. wonderful because yeah. there's respect. Yeah. And there's manners. Yeah. And it was Common just, decency. Yeah. yeah. And I think I remember seeing it and just thinking that must it must hurt. It must burn to have to shake that, you know, let them into the home and know what potentially is coming and to just be so classy. Yeah, that's really them. That's them in a nutshell in a way that I think even we had been around him and it was still awe-inspiring to see them pull that off because um, I don't think anyone knew it would be as bad as it turn it's turned out to be as mm -hmm. far as President Trump immediately going after um, debunking a lot of the Obama policies not even out of um, ideals, but just out of spite. So even President Obama uh, protected, I think, a couple hundred thousand square miles of ocean um, off Midway Island, which is close to Japan, but it's it's ours, it's the U.S.'s, and um, Trump has repealed that. Where it's just like, you don't even know where that is. You have no idea where Midway Island is. And, you know, it's this tiny island that's just there for research. Um, and it's a huge hub for marine biologists. And it's really important work. And, of course, Trump's like, oh, no, we don't need to protect that. Because it, Obama wanted to, so we should repeal it. As somebody who took down his every word, the president's every word, um, for five years, how do you feel about fake news? It's pretty unbelievable. I mean, I feel the way I think most of us feel, which is just sort of, I think the scariest thing that can happen is that we get used to it. Um, but it's been so wild just from day one of the Trump administration where Sean Spicer came out and was just lying about things. And, and I was staring at the reporters and they were looking back and then emailing their editors and being like, what do we do with this? Because it was one thing on the Trump campaign for him to be saying fake news and these are lies, but to say it from the White House podium mm -hmm. was just sort of mind-boggling. And then, oh, talk about incentives to leave. Then I had to go back to my office and type it up. And I was like, this isn't true. And this is, com this is on White House letterhead. Because obviously, previously, you would have written things up. And if there had been, if a news outlet had said something 
you would have just referred them to the transcript. And said, right. This yeah. This is it in real time. This, yeah. This the press secretary was great about that. Was always very exciting for our for our office when the press secretary was like, "You are taking that out of context. Please refer to the official White House transcript." And we were like, "Yeah, stenographers." Transcripts uh, rule. Yeah, and also just the the press office in the Obama administration was extremely committed to being transparent and accurate and fact-checking and making sure even if they um, accidentally botched something that then they went back and made sure that it was clear, oh, we made this mistake, here's the correction, we're re-releasing the transcript with the correction and it's clearly outlined what we said that was um, misspoken and here's here's the truth. And to go from that to Sean Spicer being like, of course Trump's inauguration crowds were bigger than Obama's for three days in a row. Like It was just like, how is how is this the focus? How is this what you're talking about? And also you're just lying. Like it's clear. It doesn't take much. You look at a photograph, we know the truth. And yet here you are feeling the need to defend this to the end. Did you say that that quote photograph was blown up and hung in the White yeah. House, but it was zoomed in? It across. was zoomed in. So you were like, oh yeah, that is a lot of people. It fills the frame because the frame is smaller and the picture is bigger. <laughs> That is utterly insane. It, I mean, it's such a great encapsulation of what his team does to um, keep him from his temper tantrums. Where it's like, oh, well, if we blow up this picture, he'll feel good about his inauguration crowd. Mm, yeah. There's a lot of appeasing the angry three-year-old orange man. <laughs> what um, What has changed about how you feel about politics from having worked in the White House? Uh, well... Traveling with President Obama was really cool because during the Affordable Care Act, we would go on the road and Congress, because it was um, after midterms, it was Republican majority. And so they were campaigning heavily on, we're going to repeal Obamacare. We're going to repeal it. Um, And because of that, President Obama had to go on and be like, look at all these kids who were sick when they were four. And luckily, because of the Affordable Care Act, Um, we got rid of the lifetime cap, which is when if a kid's sick, you kind of reach this cap depending on your insurance. And then the hospital's like, okay, this is all out of pocket now. And so parents are put in this horrible position of like, I guess we have to mortgage the house. And even if we mortgage the house, our kid is still sick and the hospital bills are still adding up. And so now we're going to put a second mortgage on the house and people go into exorbitant amounts of debt and might still lose their child because of the lifetime cap and then lose their house and lose their job because they're spending all their time at the hospital with their dying child. And so because of the Affordable Care Act, we um, we curbed that. Mm-hmm. And so to meet these kids on the road who are like, I'm alive because of the ACA or my mom's alive because of the ACA uh, was incredible. And so to see that, it was like, okay, I always thought politics was sort of at arm's length and it is right at home. And mm-hmm. so that was really important. And then that had me more invested in just like here, not only is my value set, but also here are the policies that I really believe in and here's who to vote for to make sure those policies mm-hmm. stay. And then of course in 2016, when it was just like a mind, a mind meld for everyone, it was like, okay, it's really important not just to know the policies, but also to get engaged and to be active and to make sure I know who I'm voting for and to make sure everyone I know is voting uh, because it's just horrible, the environment we're living in now. Well, you said that one of the things about Trump getting in was it made you realize, well, if that can happen, I can write my book. Yeah. And I think another thing is that it has lots of things. We've got Brexit over here. It's made people realize you you have to vote. You have to know what's going on. And there has been quite a lot of political apathy. Yeah. And so that I guess that's a silver lining for all of us is that there does seem to be sort of a, a waking up among um, the general public about, oh, my God this has been going on. And, you know, I don't think Trump came out of nowhere, but I also think that uh, 
at least in the states, we were the Democrats were quite confident Hillary would win, and I think we rested on our laurels and the fact that he was this crazy man didn't realize that anything can happen if you don't turn out to vote. Quite. Well, back to the book, and I do encourage everybody to read it because it's such a good read. Thank you. (laughs) But because you're such a good writer, it wasn't a one-book deal, it's a two-book deal. Yeah. So there's another one imminent. Yeah, imminent is kind of you. Um, Yeah, Mm. as soon as... So I'm on this European book tour right now promoting this book, and then I'm excited to kind of delve into it. But yeah, I have some characters in my head I'm really excited about. I think it's going to be fiction. So it'll be... This is your, like, this is your life, and the next one will be different. Yeah, it'll be my life, but repackaged, and there won't be a Jason, so Mm -hmm. it's very exciting for me. And there's also a film, um, potential for, um, yeah, sorry, there were two books, but there's also, um, it's, the the rights been sold for a movie? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's been optioned by Anonymous Production, which did um, Spotlight, and um, Universal Studios, so they have the rights to it right now, and that happened... It was a very blurry week where that happened, I think, a day or two after the book deal came through. So it was a, it was boom, boom. And life has feel completely, <laughs> completely changed. Like uh, one of the people who has been, has written on the back of your book, you've got Lauren Weisberger, who obviously wrote The Devil Wears yeah. Prada, that I'm sure a lot of listeners will know. Piper Kerman, the author of Orange is the New Black. And Camille Perry, author of The Assistants, like these, are these your buddies now? I, I would like to think so. From, from POTUS. I owe, I owe all of them drinks. I owe <laughs> all of them lots of rounds of drinks. <laughs> could you have ever imagined, I know that you. this isn't just the beginning, but could you have ever imagined you answered that Craigslist ad? No, it actually, it almost makes me nervous when I think back because I'm like, what if I hadn't done it? Everything would be so different. It's kind of, you know, the ultimate sliding doors moment. Mm. And it's um, I, when I think about it, I'm like, don't think too hard or else everything will, everything will disappear it will slip out from under me so yeah it's it's crazy to think about one step leading to the next and it all starting with craigslist i've often talked to uh, people on the show about sliding doors moments and yours is just perhaps the i don't know that the most obvious is the right word but yours is just huge yeah that that going to that extreme yeah Yeah. blowing off the interview and just being told to travel with the president yeah although i still can't buy lululemon clothes that aren't discounted (laughs) it's like this mental block like i'll never i'll never have that kind of money to do that no 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 it is i mean they they look great and i do like i do like picking them up and going into the store but i can never spend that money no no just you know New Balance, Adidas. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong? Nike, you wear Nike. In fact, this is a question I do want to ask you. You're a runner. What are your favorite running shoes? Oh, my gosh. Um, for running shoes, I like Asics and... Uh, yeah, I Brooks. Just, not Brooks. I mean, Brooks are good. I think my sister actually run, works at a running store, so she, she sizes me up now. Um, but my favorite company is actually Hoka. Um, and they have incredible shoes. And so those are my walking shoes and they're so good. Um, I'm constantly, they have really thick soles. And so, because I've played sports my whole life and I've had all these injuries, they're just really gentle on your joints. So that I'm constantly getting stopped by like grandmothers being like, what are those shoes? And I was like, you'll love them. Wear hokas. <laughs> but also they were designed for marathoners. Oh, okay. yeah. So impact. Yeah. Um, absorption. I've enjoyed this conversation. I've enjoyed the book so much. And I have to thank you on the note of running because ever since I read the book, 
Um, every time I go to the gym and I run on the treadmill and I fl- and I'm flagging, I imagine Obama. Oh, that's so great! I do the same thing, and it makes me. <laughs> and it does. It makes you run faster. Yeah, it does. It's been. Oh, yeah, it's been funny for me because I'm like, <laughs> where is he? He's late. <laughs> Show up. Do you know whether the? I don't know whether he would read the book. He's obviously got time on his hands. So I gave him um, a few pieces of writing while I was there, and he read those. So I would like to think he read this too. Why, why change your patterns after you leave office and you have more time on your hands? Yeah. Yeah. What a nice thought. Yeah. And it's a very good looking book. So I like to think of it now. This gorgeous pink book sitting proudly in their home. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's Thank you, Emma. And listeners, I will obviously put the links to back on social media and the links to buy the book in the show notes. And um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of The Emma Gunn Show featuring Beck Dory Stein. Remember, if you want to get in touch with me, it's so, so easy. Just email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or you can also DM me on social media where I'm at Emma Gunn's on Instagram and Twitter. There's also a link to join the closed Facebook group in the show notes, which you can find wherever you are streaming, downloading and listening to this episode. Please do also, just so you never miss an episode, if that's what you would like, please also subscribe. And if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, whether you like 26 Habits or the other shows featuring my guests, please do leave a five-star review. I'd be so grateful if you would. It makes such a difference for a show like mine to stand out on these massive podcast platforms. Thank you so, so much. I'm hustling to get you more excellent guests like Beck. I will see you on the next one.